Good afternoon, listeners. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3PR. We're here every week at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. We've been telling you in past weeks how Victoria is one of the worst funded and worst resourced public education system in Australia, in spite of the fact that we've had a Labor Party in here for so long. And one wonders why, until one starts to look at where our Labor Party politicians went to school. So the dogs have done a little bit of digging just to see where the current Premier and her new Minister for Education went to school. That's our press release 1001, and Andy is going to discuss the Victorian situation with you. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Welcome to Press Release 1001 for the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. Victoria, a failed education state. But what is the education background of the new Premier and Education Minister? Save Our Schools has made a substantial submission to an inquiry on the Victorian education system being held by the Legal and Social Issues Committee, Legislative Council, Parliament of Victoria. This can be uh, downloaded from the Save Our Schools website. The Victorian Labor government claims that Victoria is the education state. This is a complete misnomer. Victoria is a failed education state. It has failed disadvantaged students and public schools. Many disadvantaged students do not achieve minimum literacy and numeracy standards. There was virtually no learning improvement by disadvantaged students between 2010 and 2022, and several declines. There are large achievement gaps between advantaged and disadvantaged students. There were a few successes, most notably in some Indigenous outcomes, but they are few and far between. In addition, there have been a significant increase in the proportion of students completing Year 12, although too many still do not achieve this. School funding failures by the Commonwealth and Victorian governments are a major factor behind these education failures. Public schools in Victoria face a funding crisis. They are massively underfunded, while private schools are overfunded. Funding increases over the past decade have heavily favoured private schools. Public schools are defrauded by the current Commonwealth Victoria bilateral funding agreement. The result is that public schools have far fewer resources than private schools, and large learning gaps persist between advantaged and disadvantaged students. There is a very big catch-up job for the new Premier Jacinta Allen and her Minister for Education, Ben Carroll. Which begs the question, what is their educational background? Both are graduates of the Catholic education system, and although Carol has worked for insurance company Amy and the Victorian government solicitor, both have spent most of their working life as career political staffers and politicians. According to Wikipedia, Jacinta Marie Allen, born 19th of September 1973, is an Australian politician serving as the 49th and current Premier of Victoria since 2023. She has been the leader of the Victorian branch of the Australian Labor Party since 2023 and has been a member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly for the District of Bendigo East since 1999. She previously served as the 29th Deputy Premier of Victoria from 2022 to 2023. Allen is the longest serving female minister in Victorian state history and currently the most senior sitting member of the Assembly. Alan was born on 19th of September 1973 in Bendigo, Victoria. A member of a prominent Bendigo political family, she is the granddaughter of William Allen, who was the president of the Bendigo Trades Hall Council. 
Ellen was educated at St Joseph's Primary School in Quarry Hill and at Catholic College Bendigo. She completed a degree of Bachelor of Arts at La Trobe University. She is married with two children and although the children are said to attend the local school, dogs do not know which local school this might be. According to Wikipedia, Benjamin Allen Carroll has been the Deputy Premier of Victoria since October 2023. He has been the Deputy Leader of the Victorian branch of the Australian Labor Party since 2023 and has been a member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly, MLA, for the division of Nidri since 2012. Carol also currently holds the positions of Minister for Education and Deputy Premier of Victoria in the State Government since the 2023 Cabinet reshuffle, which resulted in the first Allen Ministry. He has previously held various ministerial portfolios since 2020 in industry, employment, road safety and support, and public transport. Ben was born in Airport West, Victoria. He attended primary school at St Christopher's Primary and high school at St Bernard's College in Essendon. He then studied law at La Trobe University, graduating with honours in 2000. He was admitted as a legal solicitor in 2010. He holds a Master's in Law from La Trobe, having commenced the degree subsequent to his 2012 election. Prior to entering politics, Ben worked as a sales assistant for Kmart in Airport West and for the insurance company Amy in its motor vehicles division. He also worked for the Victorian government solicitor between 2009 and 2020. Carol is married with one child, but there is no public statement of where the child goes to school. There is no evidence that either Jacinta Allen or Ben Carroll have any experience with or dedication to the cause of public education. There is no evidence that they have either the desire or the political will to remedy the current defects in the education funding system. And back to you, Jean. Thank you very much for that, uh, Andy. That's our press release of 1001, and you can find it at our website, www.adogs.info. But we'll have a bit of a break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. You're still listening to the Dogs Program. Here is Dale with Trevor Cobalt's article on the private school funding model, which is increasingly incoherent, irrational and wasteful. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. The private school funding model is increasingly incoherent, irrational and wasteful. The private school funding model introduced by the Morrison government is becoming more and more incoherent and irrational. It purports to assess the financial need of private schools by the income of families with children in private schools. However, it ignores a growing source of income and assets of better off family, the bank of mum and dad. As a result, the Commonwealth government is increasingly overestimating the financial need of schools and consequently increasing their overfunding. The Bank of Mum and Dad provides a steady stream of income to more advantaged families. It includes full or partial payment of school fees by grandparents. It also includes money for home deposits or purchases and other expenditures such as cars, household assets, childcare, etc. that frees up income so that it can be spent on school fees. None of this income is included in the assessment of the capacity of 
parents to pay school fees. It was reported recently that many parents are giving their children an early inheritance to enter the housing market. It said financial gifts for house purchases usually range between 200000 and 300000 Some parents even purchase a house outright for their children. It is virtually impossible to measure the extent of the bank of mum and dad. But as one report noted, it is visible on auction floors every weekend as many buyers walk away with the keys thanks to family backing. According to Finders, a national services company, more than 60% of first home buyers in Australia receive some form of financial assistance from their parents to buy their first home. Finders estimates that the Bank of Mum and Dad for home purchases is worth about $35 billion. It ranks among the top 10 home lenders in Australia. The Bank of Mum and Dad is also a source of inherited wealth in the form of financial and physical assets which can be sold to produce income. Only 50% of the income from selling family capital assets is recorded as taxable income. As non-taxable income, the other 50% is not included in the assessment of the capacity of families to pay school fees. As a result, their actual income and capacity to contribute is further underestimated. The Bank of Mum and Dad is mainly set up by more advantaged families. Sydney University Professor of Economics Stephen Whelan said recently that children of wealthier parents are more likely to successfully enter the housing market with the support of the Bank of Mum and Dad. Very few low-income families have access to a Bank of Mum and Dad, either for current income or inherited wealth. A Productivity Commission study of wealth transfers shows that wealthier people receive much larger inheritance and income gifts than poor people. Students in private schools are mainly from more advantaged families and these families are likely to be the beneficiaries of the Bank of Mum and Dad. Figures provided to Senate estimates show that about 85% of Catholic students are from the top three socioeconomic status quartiles and 60% are from the top two quartiles. About 90% of independent school students are from the top three quartiles and 75% from the top two quartiles. Recent reports show that the Bank of Mum and Dad is a major source of income and wealth and it's growing strong. The Productivity Commission estimated the total wealth transfer in 2018 was just over $120 billion compared to under $55 billion in 2002. The value of inheritances more than doubled from $48 billion to $107 billion, while gift income nearly tripled, increasing from just over $5 billion to $14 billion. The number of people receiving gifts from parents increased from $750,000 to $1.5 million over the period. Two new studies by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute found that intra-family transfers appear to have become increasingly important, with the Bank of Mum and Dad providing an important source of housing finance. This trend was also noted in a research report published by the Institute last month. The Australian Housing Monitor found that the Bank of Mum and Dad has become increasingly important. The numbers of home buyers who have accessed informal financial assistance to purchase a home has increased 
significantly over time. Only 15.3% of those who purchased a house in the 1980s received a loan or a gift from family members. This has increased to 41% by 2020. During the 2000s, it was about 30%. In commenting on a recent survey by Australian Unity, the general manager of its super and wealth division said that an increasing number of well-off parents are helping their adult children with home deposits and other financial assistance. This prevailing environment will lead to more intergenerational financing of Australia's young adults, he said. This trend verified by the Productivity Commission. Its research report on wealth transfers estimates that the total value of inheritances will increase nearly fourfold between 2020 and 2050. All this foreshadows increasing failure of the current funding model for private schools to accurately assess the capacity of parents to pay school fees. The failure to account for inheritance wealth and income gifts from the Bank of Mum and Dad results in underestimating the capacity to pay fees. The Bank of Mum and Dad provides family with greater capacity to pay fees. Therefore, the need for government funding of private schools is overestimated and they are overfunded by the taxpayer. The overfunding of private schools because of the failure to assess the income and wealth provided by families to families by the Bank of Mum and Dad is likely to be substantial. Advantaged families benefit the most from income and inherited wealth transfers and children of these fam families comprise the majority of enrolments in private schools. This is not the only flaw in the private school funding model. The financial need of these schools is also overestimated because the model ignores donations and investment income they receive. This amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars annually. For example, figures obtained from the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission show that 50 private schools received $611 million in donation and investment income over five years from 2017 to 2021 or about 2.4 million dollars per school per year. A complete overhaul of this failed funding model is long overdue. It's a model specifically designed to overfund private schools. The Albanese government should acknowledge that the funding model is unfair, incoherent and wasteful. It should commission an independent inquiry to design a better approach. It's not a matter of tinkering with the model. Basing the funding on, of private schools on the concept of parent capacity to pay is fundamentally flawed. The problems associated with this approach are insuperable because it ignores other incomes and assets of families and schools. A new model for funding private schools is necessary to ensure they're funded solely on needs basis. The basic principle behind government funding of private schools should be that no school operates with less total resources than a community standard necessary to provide an adequate education for all students. Governments have the responsibility to ensure that children should not be 
deprived of an adequate education because their parents enrol them in under-resourced schools. Government funding for private schools should only fill the gap between the community standard and income from fees and other sources of income. This funding should be conditional on private schools meeting the same social obligations and standards as public schools. Schools with private income above the community standard should not be entitled to baseline government funding because it would extend their resource advantage over public schools. Great work from Trevor Cobold there. Back to you, Jean. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dale. And, of course, that article is up to Trevor Cobold's usual standard. Great article. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to some news from TAFE. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, here you are listening to the Dogs program, but we're going over to the TAFE situation. The AEU has produced a very interesting article on what is on offer in the TAFE sector for free for young people. The TAFE sector has, in fact, got something to offer, so we hope that you will enjoy this article from the Australian Education Union. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, this is Funding for the Future and it comes from AEU. It was written on the 23rd of October. Funding a future-focused workforce means funding a diverse and inclusive TAFE with equity front and centre and fee-free TAFE is a small part of the solution. The Australian government has taken the lead on fee-free TAFE by providing $493 million as part of the $1 billion 12-month skills agreement established in partnership with state and territory governments. This partnership has provided 180,000 fee-free TAFE and vocational education places for 2023. An additional 414.1 million has been committed for 300,000 TAFE and vocational fee-free places from January 2024 over the five-year National Skills Agreement. Fee-free training places are based on national priority industries. These priority industries include the care industry, which is aged care, childcare, healthcare and disability care, technology and digital, hospitality and tourism, construction, agriculture and sovereign capability. Priority groups that will be targeted to fill these fee-free places include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, young people aged 17 to 24, people receiving income support payments, unpaid carers, women facing economic insecurity, women undertaking study in non-traditional fields, people with lived experience of disability and certain categories of visa holders. Minister for Skills and Training Brendan O'Connor said on ABC Sydney Radio that the take-up has exceeded government expectations. Across the economy, around a third of those courses that have been taken up are in the care economy, Disability care, aged care, childcare, areas where the labour supply is in much demand. And there are other areas too. 20,000 at least in construction, 17,000 in information technology. One third of the courses are also in regional areas of the country and 60% of the enrollees are women. So it's been a really, really great take up. We've met our targets well in advance of our goal. And as you said, we've exceeded 180,000 enrolments and hit 214 thousand enrolments, so we are now looking beyond this year. In August 2023, the Prime Minister's Office released data that demonstrated the initial take-up of fee-free places in the first six months of the scheme nationally was 214 
to 35,000, more than expected in the entire first year of the program. Demographically significant enrolments came from priority cohorts, including disadvantaged and in-need Australians, with enrolments including 50,000 job seekers, 23.7%, 15,000 people with disability and 6,000 First Nations Australians. Not surprisingly, due to the feminised care industry being the major priority industry targeted for training, women make up the majority, 60.2% of enrolments, with close to 130,000 women taking on a qualification under the program. More than a third of fee-free enrolments, 34.1%, were in geographically inner and outer regional areas. The additional funding and fee-free places will not immediately fully address the lasting damage to TAFE caused by the failed marketisation and contestable funding policy model settings of the previous government, but it does provide a much-needed entry pathway for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and those from culturally diverse backgrounds. In addition to ongoing funding of fee-free places, funding of TAFE's wraparound services are imperative to the success of the project, as well as programs to support literacy and numeracy, such as Western Australia's CAVSS and USIQ, which involves a literacy or numeracy lecturer team teaching with the vocational lecturer or free access to foundational studies. Ensuring student success for people with English as an additional language is key to the ongoing success and sustainability of the fee-free initiative, if it, is to, if it is to address skills shortages present and future. Finding the development of a diverse and inclusive TAFE sector that reflects the diversity of modern-day Australia through strategic initiatives is essential to ready Australia's workforce of the future. And if we are to be a modern country that learns from the past and 65,000 years of knowledge of the land, water and air, then this strategy must centre Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as Australia's first peoples and the unique perspectives and knowledge that First Nations Australians bring. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students participating in vocational education and training have a right to be comfortable and proud of their first peoples' cultural identity. TAFE has been a place for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to seek education and training, and as more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people take up study, there is an even greater need for culturally appropriate education and cultural competency training for teachers. The 2021 census showed an increase in the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders between the ages of 20 and 64 who had gained qualifications to pick at three training or above, from 35% in 2011 to 42% in 2016, and to 48% or 182,620 people in 2021. As educational institutions have realised the importance of providing an educational ecosystem that develops learning experiences that celebrate and promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, support must also be given to teachers to upskill and access cultural competency training. TAFE teachers are asked to provide a culturally safe, inclusive and welcoming learning environment and they are responsible for nurturing this environment through their attitudes, behaviours and their cultural competency responsiveness, oftentimes with insufficient support and training. The diversity of culturally responsive strategies to engage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students in the TAFE learning environment requires a level of funding to provide an appropriate level of cultural competency training to all teachers currently teaching the TAFE system. Whilst the provision of fee-free places provides a pathway into TAFE, 
Proper funding of wraparound services supports retention of students from priority groups, the employment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander teachers and those from other diverse backgrounds creates a safe environment for those students and is another critical issue for investment in a secure workforce. This can be achieved via the development of a future-focused TAFE workforce strategy, drawing in those already qualified and skilled educators that have left the sector due to the unreliable casualisation of the workforce and via the equipping of all TAFE teachers with an AQF6 qualification or higher in adult or tertiary education by providing free and subsidised certificate for TAE or diploma qualification. Bringing cohorts traditionally excluded from meaningful workforce participation not only benefits communities economically through financial participation, but also fosters innovation, alleviates skill shortages and creates more stable and inclusive workplaces, which typically leads to happier and more productive employees. Internationally, direct targeting of those from diverse backgrounds with inclusion initiatives has seen a boost in employment for these cohorts and the filling of those hard-to-recruit-for roles in industries such as the caring industry. Management expert Michelle E. Moore-Barak's longitudinal research highlighted in her renowned and since updated 2005 book Managing Diversity Toward a Globally Inclusive Workplace found diversity, inclusion and equity has also seen a burgeoning specialisation within business, governmental and non-profit organisations, seeing professionals within this sector moving from within the human resources realm into specific roles across skills areas as a core business practice to achieve an array of goals, including profitability and sustainability. Disrupting the skills shortages that are recognised globally as one of the greatest challenges for organisations and just as providing safe and inclusive workplaces encourages greater workplace participation, safe and inclusive education also encourages skills to be taken up. The stakes are high for student success. For Aboriginal and Torres Islander people, student success is not only about obtaining knowledge and education, then being about going out to get a job to participate in society economically. It's about the bigger picture. It's about health, well-being and happiness. It's about pride, and it's about everything that will come from that point on. Studies have shown that participation in adult education indirectly benefits physical and mental health by improving social capital and connectedness, health and behaviour, skills and employment outcomes. Adult education participation is also proven to be even more beneficial to the health and social outcomes of those from marginalised and disadvantaged groups, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Longitudinal studies show that adults who participate in post-school learning engage in healthier behaviours, including increased amounts of physical exercise and improved social and emotional well-being. It's evident that to achieve positive outcomes through closing the gap initiatives, intersecting policy approaches must be considered. For First Nations communities, our experience are not siloed. They are intrinsically connected through our shared histories and lived experiences of colonial systems and structures, including the educational systems and structures that we must navigate. The provision of entry pathways and adult education through TAFE or other vocational education options is therefore not only providing education and training, it's also more broadly improving the health of First Nations individuals and communities in the process. And that was by... Debbie Morgan Frail from the AEU. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Maddie.
Well, we hope you're still listening to the dogs because this next uh, article is very interesting indeed. In uh, in our introductory, in our uh, press release 1001, we were talking about the uh, people in Victoria that um, have an interest, uh, certainly a background, in the private school system. And the dog's position, of course, is that this system should not be publicly funded. But the education minister in the Albanese government has uh, been spooking about how he went to public schools. But that doesn't mean to say that he's not having two bob each way. He launched the first faith-based education summit. So here's Dale with the education minister in Canberra, the Albanese government, launching the first faith-based education summit. And they want money not just for the primary and secondary because they've got billions for that. Now they want it for the tertiary sector. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. I've got an article from Australian Christian Higher Education Alliance, a release from them titled Education Minister Launches First Faith-Based Education Summit. The inaugural Faith-Based Higher Education Summit is sponsored by the Minister for Education, the Honourable Jason Clare MP. For the first time in Australia's history, faith leaders, academics and peak bodies from the sector will come together and articulate a vision for the role of faith-based higher education in the region. A booming faith-based based secondary education sector, now teaching around 50% of all secondary students in some major cities, has dramatically increased demand for diverse tertiary pathways with a faith ethos. However, sector representatives highlight the ongoing challenges around the student funding inequality, access to research grants and religious freedom that needs to be addressed. Spokesperson for the Australian Christian Higher Education Alliance, or ACHEA, Dr. Johan Rue, CEO of Tabor College, expressed his appreciation to the Minister for hosting the summit. We're delighted that Minister Clare's been able to support this vision of bringing the faith-based higher education sector together under the Parliament roof, Dr. Rue said. The response has been fantastic, with Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu and Buddhist innovators and academics all coming and seeking to engage with how to address the education and training needs in their faith communities. Faith-based higher education providers have dominated the student experience QILT rankings for many years, taking out 12 of the top 14 spots in the latest report. And it's high time we utilise the quality, growth, innovation and diversity in this sector. Faith is reason grown courageous and today's summit is an opportunity to bring forth that unique vision and contribution to our nation and internationally. ACHEA, the facilitators of the event, represents a coalition of faith-based institutions including Avondale University, Alpa Crucis University College, Christian Heritage College, Eastern College Australia, Excelsior College, Morlin College, Sheridan Institute of Higher Education and Tabor College. Other prominent guests attending the summit include Sheikh Shadi Al-Sulamain, the President of the Australian National Imams Council, Senator Sarah Henderson, the Shadow Ed Minister for Education, and Ms Selina Kuralika, the Secretary of Education for Fiji. We must not forget that faith-based education, higher education also plays a significant role in Australia and the wider region, continued Dr Rue. 
the close communities and purpose-infused curriculum benefits are clear with evidence showing faith-based higher education students are more likely to be the be first in family, put in more volunteer hours and choose more service-orientated careers. Additionally, in the South Pacific region, one of the key obstacles to social and economic development has been a lack of adequate access to quality tertiary education. With a 92% rate of Christian affiliation in the South Pacific and 86% Muslim affiliation in Indonesia, there are important partnership opportunities that are being overlooked. So the Faith-Based Higher Education Summit was held on Monday, October 30th. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Dale. Jason Clare's obviously having two bob each way. It's going to be fascinating to read the report of the um, group that are meeting in Canberra about the new funding deal for public and private schools, uh, which is due, by the way, at the end of October, which has passed. Now let's get a little bit positive. Andy's going to tell us about the National Road Trip, which has begun in Melbourne on the 27th of October for World Teachers Day. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. National Road Trip begins in Melbourne on World Teachers Day. A national road trip involving principals, teachers, parents and community members is being launched on World Teachers Day today to help secure full funding for public schools. AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe said the road trip is being undertaken as part of the For Every Child campaign. Starting in Darwin, Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Hobart, branded vehicles will travel through city, regional and remote areas. World Teachers Day is a great opportunity to recognise the extraordinary efforts and achievements of Australia's teachers and we are marking the occasion by stepping up our national campaign, calling on the government to put an end to the chronic underfunding of public schools, Ms Haythorpe said. On this road trip, we will be holding meetings and events with teachers, principals, education support staff, parents and community members and asking them to sign postcards to the PM, calling for him to deliver full funding for public schools by 2028. The road trip will culminate with the delivery of thousands of postcards to Parliament House in Canberra in late November. The launch of the road trip comes as new research reveals alarming gaps for teachers on wages and workloads. Released ahead of World Teachers Day, the report is the first comprehensive analysis of information collected from over 380,000 public and private school teachers across Australia as part of the 2021 ABS census. The report, by senior researcher Barbara Preston, found school teachers work extraordinarily long hours compared with workers in comparable professions. On average, 48% of full-time teachers worked 45 hours or more a week in 2021, compared to 31% of those working full-time in other professions with a bachelor's degree or above qualifications. At the same time, public school teachers earn less than those in comparable professions at the start of their career and the gap widens with age. At age 60 to 64, the average annual salary of public school classroom teachers in 2021 was $109,466 compared to $153,293 for solicitors. Reflecting the current inequity in school resourcing, 56% of private school teachers aged 45 to 49 earn more than 104000 a year in 2021, compared to 46% of public school teachers. 
private schools employ smaller proportions of early career teachers, leaving public school systems disproportionately bearing the cost of supporting and developing new graduates, something that should be factored into the funding of schools. And the number of teachers aged in their 60s was far higher in 2021 than in any previous census, with over 44,000 recorded. But the numbers of people completing teaching degrees decreased by 15% between 2011 and 2020. Only 84% of recent graduates with school teaching qualifications were working in schools in 2021, and that dropped to 71% for those aged around 35. Ms Haythorpe says the report findings should be a wake-up call for politicians to address the deteriorating conditions for teachers. Addressing unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries is critical to attracting and retaining the teachers we need. Principals, teachers and education support staff are delivering a great education for our children and young people in our public schools, but they are being asked to do too much with too little. Only 1.3% of public schools are funded at the schooling resource standard, the minimum amount governments agreed to a decade ago as necessary to meet the needs of all students. AEU Victorian branch president Meredith Pearce said full funding and the immediate introduction of a staff retention payment would help schools retain more teachers and go some way to acknowledge their significant contribution. The Preston report demonstrates the urgent need to reduce the workload and improve the pay of public school teachers, principals and education support staff, sending a clear message that they are highly valued and respected and acknowledging the increasingly complex work they do supporting student learning and wellbeing. A commitment to delivering at least 100% of the schooling resource standard funding would make a crucial difference to public education provision in Victoria by enabling schools to better provide the individual support and programs students need, as well as appropriately recognising the critical work undertaken by teachers and other staff, said Ms Pearce. Governments cannot properly support student learning and wellbeing without attracting, retaining and supporting school staff first, not least when our schools are faced with a teacher shortage crisis. During our road trip, we'll continue to engage with communities across Victoria to spread awareness of these issues and build support for fully funded public schools to ensure every child has the opportunity to achieve their full potential, she said. Back to you, Jean. Well, it's tremendous when teachers are up and going and fighting. And they have been in the UK and uh, Jeff is going to take us over to the UK to give us some good news and then he's going to take us over to America where the news is not so good. Over to you, Jeff. And this week I thought I'd start with the UK. Was here we find that the teachers' pay pensions are going to go up, but private schools aren't. So the contributions that pay towards teachers' pensions will rise more than 20% from April, they say. Government has committed to funding the rise for state schools and colleges for one year without any further commitments and to be cited at future spending reviews. But private schools have been left out, meaning they will have to soak up the extra costs. Employer contributions will rise from 23.6% to 28.6% after evaluation to ensure the scheme continues to meet the present and future obligations. A statement announcing the changes read, The Department for Education appreciates that the result means independent schools that participate in the scheme will be faced with additional costs that aren't funded. It's hoped that the information shared previously or on the likely final result will have helped them in planning for the change. However, it comes alongside the commitment from the Labor Party to impose VAT on private schools should it form a government. Private schools will drop out of the scheme. More than 300 private schools have already pulled out of the teachers' pension scheme since 2018, according to the analysis this month. The National Education Union said it anticipates more will follow suit. Daniel Cabetti, General Secretary of the National Education Union, said private school teachers are to face the threat of losing a decent pension 
and that's unacceptable, it should set alarm bells ringing across society. The National Education Union is not prepared to sit back while our members see their contracts of employment ripped up and their pensions snatched away. The NEU will robustly support our members to take all necessary action to defend their terms and conditions. The NEU said the rise was down to a technical change imposed by the government. Julie Robertson, CEO of the Independent Schools Council, added that the change alongside Labor's pledge means difficult decisions will have to be made to ensure schools remain financially viable, meaning private schools, of course. So that's an interesting outcome, especially because the teachers scheme over there, they still have the defined benefits scheme, which was wiped out by in Australia by the Howard government in 2005. Yeah, defined benefits from 23.6% to 28% for teachers in the UK. That's a good outcome for teachers in state schools in the UK. Now we're going to go to the US. This is an article linked via Diana Ravitch's blog, uh, but it's actually from an article in The Jacobin. It's by Nora Delacour. Religious charter schools undermine the foundations of public education. A church-run charter school is on track to open in Oklahoma, publicly funded but run by the archdiocese. The arrival of religious charter schools is one more piece of evidence that public charter schools are not so public after all. In early October, Georgia State Senator Eleanor Parent co-authored an op-ed for publication The 74, <clears throat> entreating her fellow Democrats to recall their former support for charter schools, decrying the GOP-backed private school voucher schemes passing in state after state. Parent warns that these programs unfairness does not mean Democrats should abandon discussion around school choice. Rather, she argues, they must re-energise their own liberal versions, uh, vision of school choice, focusing on bringing opportunities to un underserved populations. A decade ago, it was easier to make this sort of pro-civil rights liberal defence of charter schools, albeit ignoring the gathering evidence about who is harmed by charterisation and the attending defunding and closure of neighbourhood schools. Today, though, it's overwhelmingly clear that charters, like other forms of school privatisation, are among the right, the right's uh, primary tools for advancing the decidedly illiberal vision of free market fundamentalism and, and Christian nationalism. And recent decisions from our radicalised Supreme Court, the US, have suggested that Legally speaking, char speaking, charter schools may not be all that different from voucher-supported private schools. One of the most glaring examples of this is St Isadora of Seville, a virtual Oklahoma Catholic school that, if it opens in 2024 as planned, it will be the nation's first-run charter, church-run charter. The Archdiocese of Oklahoma City intends to use this publicly-funded statewide school as a genuine instrument of the church a place of real and specific pastoral ministry, they say on their website, complete with religiously motivated discrimination against protected group of, uh, groups of kids. It's just one more example of how privatisation makes fertile ground for the desecularisation of America's schools and the erosion of students' rights. Uh, <coughs> a title, St Isadora of Vanishing Civil Rights. Weeks before the Supreme Court elevated religious free exercise over the Establishment Clause by ruling that Maine's town tuitioning, pro tuitioning program could not bar private schools from putting taxpayer money to religious uses, attorney and leading education policy scholar Kevin Wellner made a prediction. Such an outcome in Carson versus Macon, he argued, would act as an invitation for church-run charter schools. Sure enough, Oklahoma's virtual charter board with two new right-wing appointees voted in June to grant a charter for St Isidora of Seville Catholic Virtual School, SISCVS, 
which will be operated by the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. This month, the board, the board approved the school's contract, bringing it one step closer to furthering the evangelising mission of the church on Oklahoma taxpayers' dime. But the board's chairman refused to sign the contract, demonstrating the high level of contention surrounding the school's the SIS CVSs within the conservative Bible Belt state. A religious charter school runs afoul of both the Oklahoma Constitution and the Oklahoma Charter Schools Act, to say nothing of the US Constitution's promise of church-state separation. Back in 2016, nearly 60% of Oklahomans voted against a constitutional amendment that would have allowed public money to be used for religious purposes. While Oklahoma's Republican government Governor Kevin Stitt has been amongst uh, the school's most avid cheerleaders. The state's Attorney General, Jet Gentner Drummond, also a Republican, has vehemently opposed the school, asserting that Christian nationalism is the movement that is giving oxygen to this attempt to eviscerate the establishment cause. In the SIS-CVS charter application, the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City states that the school will operate in harmony with faith and morals, including sexual morality, as taught and understood by the Magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, uh, instruction will assist parents in forming and cultivating children who believe, amongst other things, that God created, created persons, male and female, and that if we reject God's invitation, we will end up in hell. In response to Drummond's charge that the school appears intent on violating the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Archdiocese insists it is committed to providing a school environment that is free from unlawful discrimination, harassment and retaliation, uh, but emboldened by Supreme Court rulings subordinating anti-discrimination laws to religious free exercise, they suggest that these practices are lawful when they're required by faith. In July, a nonpartisan nonprofit and nine Oklahoma residents, including Christian faith leaders and parents, filed a lawsuit in state court to stop the school from opening. Represented by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the ACLU, the Education Law Centre and the Freedom from, from Religion Foundation, the plaintiff's arguments include that the charter is unlawful because it will discriminate against kids and family based on religion, LGBTQ identity, disability status and other protected characteristics and indoctrinate students in Catholic religious dogma. As Rachel Laser, President and CEO of Americans United, told Jacobin, Jacobin the case is about standing up to religious extremists who want to impose their beliefs on other people's children using the power and imprimatur of the state. Last week, A.G. Drummond filed his own lawsuit against the virtual Charter Board members, arguing that not only is this an irreparable violation of our individual religious liberty, but it is an unthinkable waste of our tax dollars. The fate of religious schools, uh, Kevin Wellner explained to Jacobin, will depend on the number of interrelated legal questions. Are charters state actors, meaning that their students have constitutional rights while in school? This... Uh, Supreme Court of the United States recently declined to review the state action question with regard to a North Carolina charter school. Relatedly, are charters private or public, and must they remain secular? If charters can be granted to religious institutions, can those institutions engage in faith-based discrimination? How courts answer these questions will have serious implications for kindergarten to 12 education in the United States. As well noted, 
uh, following Carson versus Macon, if courts side with a church-run charter school, finding that a state attempts to restrict religiously infused teachings and practices at the school are an infringement of the church's free exercise rights, then the circle is complete. Charter school laws have become voucher laws. Privatisation undermines democracy, they say. Uh, the prospect of a state-sponsored Sunday school is alarming. And Wellner, who directs the National Education Policy Centre at the University of Colorado, Boulder, told Jacobin he expects that there are already parallel efforts underway in other states. But church-run charter schools are just one front in the war against secular public education. Private school vouchers and education savings accounts allow public education dollars to flow to private schools that evangelise, discriminate and create hostile environments for kids whose identities don't align to a narrow definition of Christian morality. And various networks and right-wing institutions manage faith-friendly, classical or back-to-basics charter schools that market themselves to conservative white families, cloaking their Christian nationalist curriculum in an oh-so-thin veil of secularity. The Network for Public Education, NPE, recently published, published an extensive investigation into this rapidly growing branch of the charter sector, which is disproportionately operated by for-profit entities. NPE's executive director and the report's co-author, Carol Burris, told Jacobin, we already have quasi-religious charter schools. If there was once a line in the sand, clearly winds from the right have blown it away. Arguably, though, there was never such a clear line defining the publicness of charter schools or protecting our kids from discrimination in an increasingly privatised education landscape. Writing about Carson versus Macon law and political economy scholar Kate Redburn explains how the libertarian and Christian wings of the conservative legal movement have orchestrated a two-step process to shift the democratic articulation of public values and the allocation of public resources to private religious power. The first step is to privatise public goods and services. The second step is to eliminate the distinction between religious and secular in the newly empowered private sphere. When educational institutions are publicly operated, it's possible for states to attach strings to funding, ensuring that schools are meeting all the needs of all students. But when governments turn public education dollars over to private hands, they lose their ability to regulate those dollars' use for the common good. In the revised application for SIS of CVS, the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City argues that regardless of their public label, Oklahoma charter schools are not operated in any meaningful way by the state but are subjected only to a broad oversight, with private, even for-profit, organisations given control over their day-to-day -day operations. In other words, how, in this wild west of unregulated private operators, can the state expect to safeguard the secularity of its charter schools? Public schools are the only public schools. School choice Democrats like Cory Booker, Barack Obama and Arnie Deacon mastered the contortionist art of pinching school privatisation, which strips families of their right to democratically elected school boards as the civil rights issue of our time. Publicly funded, privately managed charter schools, they argued, would increase opportunities for marginalised students, levelling an unfair playing field. It was never true, and decades of research have shown us that charter schools don't outperform their publicly managed counterparts, but they do drain funding from neighbourhood schools attended by poor kids. 
Nevertheless, a sheen of equity and opportunity sparkled around the bipartisan charter school initiatives in the Bush and Obama days of education reform. But in the Trump era, Betsy DeVos, a privatiser laser-focused on state-funded Christian education, made the school choice brand feel icky to its D-column champions. While DeVos treated the Federal Charter Schools Program, CSP, as a slush fund for large charter chains, Carol Burris and her team launched a series of reports documenting the rampant waste, fraud and abuse the program was enabling. By the 2020 presidential primary, it was clear the Democrats were looking to distance themselves from the charter movement, taking their cues from organisations like the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, NAACP, which called for a moratorium on new charters by 2016. Biden's Education Department attempted to make good on a campaign promise to eliminate federal funding for for-profit for charter schools, thanks in no small part to the work of Burris and NPE, who marshalled the grassroots network of public education advocates willing to take on the charter sector's powerful Washington guardians. And while the department's new CSP rules don't go that quite that far, they do make it much harder for profit seekers to cash in on the program. They also increase transparency and accountability for grantees and set up requirements aimed at combating resegregation and federally financed white flight, of charters, white flight charters. In Congress, the 2023 House Appropriations Bill supported these tighter rules and reduced CSP funding by $40 million, seemingly in recognition that the federal government caused grave harm by promoting reckless charter expansion. But the CSP overhaul drew pushback from the Democrats like Colorado Governor Jared Porles, a libertarian with ties to the Democrats for education reform. The hedge fund-powered PAC dedicated to grooming pro-charter legislators. Burris explained to Jacobin that while most of the party had distanced itself from the charter movement, that there are very few indications that Democrats are ready to stand up to the charter lobby. This is a long article and I'll end it there, but thank you very much and I'll pass it back to you, Jean. Well, the battle for public education is perennial and the dogs are here to keep it going week by week, year by year, and uh, we can say that there's good news and there's bad news. But we always like to end with the good news story with our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. great state school of the week is Yinar Primary School. Yinar Primary School, nestled at the foothills of the Strzelecki Ranges in Gippsland, is indeed fortunate to have a community that is supportive, knowledgeable and one that values education greatly. The small rural community of Yinar is growing in size with the recent three-stage development of farming land into residential housing. The school currently has an SFOE of 0.3436 and a school enrolment of 230. And I've just taken from their website some information. The school promotes a set of values which empower students to make positive contributions to the school and the wider communities. The students live and learn by the values growth mindset, respect, aim high, curiosity and enthusiasm, which gives you the acronym GRACE. At YPS, the learning framework is a split-screen approach between curriculum content and learning dispositions. The learning dispositions are the consistent language explicitly used daily to make the learning process visible from prep through to grade 6. 
We believe that a growth mindset assists us to become effective learners and that intelligence is cultivated through learning. We feel successful when we take risks, struggle, work hard and improve in whatever we are doing. Our teaching and learning model ensures learners can identify the attitudes, skills and knowledge we attend for them to acquire. It takes the learning visible and ensures consistency across the school, guaranteeing all students have equal access to learning. The teachers are highly talented and dedicated. They work in collaboration to develop a school culture that values teaching and learning. The school structure consists of 10 classes, which are predominantly composite grades. The structure is organised into two sub-school teams, incorporating classes in the years 4 to 6 and prep to 3 areas of the school, with each teacher working closely with a buddy grade. Specialist lessons comprise physical education, visual arts, performing arts, environmental studies and the language other than English is Chinese. Fostering a strong partnership between the family and the school through clear and continuous communication is a key element in student success at Yinar Primary School. All parents are encouraged to be actively involved in their child's education and in school events. And now looking at some of the ACARA numbers from the My School website. The school has 235 pupils. The ICSIA value of the school is 1,025, just above the average of 1,000, but the students are broadly representative of the community. This is a semi-rural community. 12% have parents from the upper 25% in income, 27% in the second highest, 32% from the third quartile, and 41% from the poorest 25% of the community. 2% of the pupils speak a language other than English, and 3% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a friendly country school with hard-working parents, children and teachers. It costs the taxpayer only $12,000 to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $598,000 from the federal government and $2.04 million from the state government, $85,000 from fees and $12,000 from private fundraising. Capital grants in the past three years have been only $232,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these students range to above to well above average. Well, congratulations to Yamaha Primary School, a lovely little country school with uh, such fantastic results on so little. There are some really good teachers in our public school system, aren't they? And we are very blessed. But we're also blessed to have had Dale and Jeff and Andy and Maddie to help us today. Have a look at our website, www.adogs.info. But from all of us here at the Dogs, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe. Bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't 
smiling with his eyes Says Joe what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize it's there you'll find your hill. It's there you'll find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.